Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you want to learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Now, before we begin and I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. 2020 was one heck of a year that saw many businesses double down on virtual content creation, and even more businesses, unfortunately, fall to the wayside. If you already have a platform, a podcast, a YouTube channel, and you're ready to shift into 2021 to begin creating more content that breaks through the noise, be sure to check out Nightly Productions and find out how we can help you stop wasting time and money on content that does not deliver. Now for today's guest, I am extremely excited for today's guest. He's the Chief Operating Officer of Broadwell Property Group, a multifamily investment firm based in Atlanta, Georgia. He has been one of the most sought after speakers, coaches, and mentors in the multifamily industry. He's a regular contributor to the Jake and Gino community and actually serves as, I believe he's the master coach over there. (laughs) He just released what is now one of my favorite real estate books of all time, Creative Cash, where he talks about the strategies he used in acquiring his first 402 units without receiving a single loan from a traditional lender to buy the deals. No banks, not one, nil. Now, with over 15 years of experience and surviving both up and down market cycles, please give a warm welcome to the famous Bill Ham. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it, man. That was a really good introduction. <laughs> I have to write that down. Yeah, you know, I, I could send it to you after. <laughs> I was taking notes. I like that. That's good. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. And, and thank you for, for coming on to sure. my show. And, you know, first off, you know, on, you know, after doing some research, I noticed that you went from being a corporate pilot to now over into real estate. Correct. And so I was wondering, well, what was that experience like? And why did you even want to want to make the switch? Yeah, I got bored uh, is a short answer. Um, <laughs> I, I found out I really wasn't a great employee uh, that it turns out. And uh, no, long story, basically, um, I loved aviation. I love flying airplanes. I, I came out of school, this is sort of post uh, 2001. And I was a flight instructor uh, teaching people how to fly airplanes. And I got kind of stuck in that job for a while because if anybody remembers back in the aviation era in 2001, it was pretty bad. Um, so after a few years of doing that, ultimately got a job and became a corporate pilot for a, a neurosurgeon in Macon, Georgia, was flying airplanes. Um, it was a great job, great company. I loved working for that group. But I realized that the important people were actually sitting in the back of the airplane. You know, the, the <laughs> pilot was really important from takeoff to landing. And then very unimportant when that airplane was sitting on the ground. And, you know, and what I didn't realize about aviation and any pilot out there listening uh, who does this for a living will will know there's a lot of downtime in that business. You know, you you think about the job of a pilot, you imagine, you know, flying around and fun airplanes and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. But that's about 10 percent of the job. 90 percent of the job sitting around in some airport waiting for the boss to tell you to fly home. I, I, I just couldn't do it. You know, again, I love flying airplanes. I didn't like being told when to fly airplanes and where to fly them. I wanted to do it on my own. 
So uh, I, I studied real estate for about a year, reading all the books that I could read, all the information, all the, the normal stuff people have read, and just finally found a duplex. And um, it was being sold by a friend of mine. And I convinced him to give me seller financing for a few months on that deal. My very first deal, uh, I had saved up $10,000 from the job and the uh, duplex was cash flow and 300 bucks. And that's what I quit aviation on, turned to my two week notice and said, you know, I'm out of here. Went out and made lots of mistakes in real estate uh, along the way. <laughs> learned, learned from all of them, survived all of them. Uh, and I'm still here today, as you said, a little over 15 years later. But uh, it was an interesting road. It was, it was ups and downs. I certainly don't encourage people to just run out and quit their job you know, when they get their first deal, I would keep in mind, I was 28 years old at the time. I had no children, no family, no, or no, no debt. You know what I mean? It was pretty easy for me to make that transition. So I always like to kind of throw that in there. Don't, you know, don't, don't uh, just go quit any kind of decent paying job just because uh, you heard me do it. But, <laughs> but it was a way that uh, got me to commit to the business. Hmm. It was a way that, that I figured if I had to go survive, I would focus and, um, and it worked. And that's exactly what I did. You know, so, Question going back to that first duplex, and also thank you for sharing that sure. story. Going back to that first duplex, you said you took it down with seller financing. Now, I right. know for, for most people that jump into real estate for the first time, they usually go with uh, first time home buyers program. Now, what made you or what made you even consider doing seller financing in the first place? And how did you even learn about this strategy? Right. It was actually quite an easy decision. I had no money. <laughs> real easy choice right there. No money, no experience and didn't know what the heck I was doing. So that was not a hard decision to make. Uh, no, I, I got lucky is the answer. Um, hmm. I, I stumbled. It was a friend of mine and they were already flipping houses and, and renovating and flipping, you know, small multifamily and things of this nature. And so I kind of got taken under their wing a little. And that's when I went to them and said, hey, you know, if you can give me financing for a few months, what I can do is refinance the bank and then pay you off 100%. And that'll allow me to get into a bank loan. So that's exactly what I did. And that's largely how I built that 402 unit portfolio to begin with. Get into the deal with some sort of creativity, seller financing, lease option, uh, lines of credit, credit cards, you name it. I was, I was doing it to buy real estate. And then the exit strategy would be a, a takeout or refinance at a traditional lender, therefore paying off the original seller financing or however I got into the deal. So most of these assets were distressed assets, you know, and I was able to find a seller that was willing to give me access to the real estate in order to let me go in and bring the, the value add, the elbow grease, you know, bring that property back up to sweat equity, as I call it, you know, and I, and I would bring the asset up to a level that the bank was then comfortable with. And so that's really what I was doing is I was taking assets that were not really financeable by this traditional financing means, you know, a, a distressed asset. You go into the bank and you say, hey, I want to borrow 80 percent. They look at the property and they say, no, it's in disrepair. It doesn't make money. So those were the assets I was focusing on. And um, that's what I did. So, yeah, I got seller financing from a friend of mine. And again, I, I was just making it up. It wasn't something I really studied. Um, and I made up a lot of that stuff in the beginning <laughs> just out of survival, just out of, of sheer need. Huh. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine. Well, I mean, actually, I guess you could imagine was this first deal. I would love to know just I mean, you got the deal under contract and, and you were able to, you know, did, did you actually do you actually still have the deal right now? Or do you still? Do you <laughs> Funny still you asked that question. Yes. Uh, the very first deal I ever bought, I still own it. 
Okay. I have, I have been rid of all other assets that I've owned from back in that day with the very, very first property I, I still own. Hopefully, hopefully the lender is not listening. Um, it's been abandoned for about five, six years now. <laughs> I've uh, always made the joke. I've probably abandoned more real estate than most people are ever going to close. Don't worry about it. Make a mistake, write it off. Go buy, you know, if you mess up one, buy two. If you mess up two, buy 10. You'll get it right eventually. Just don't quit. Just don't stop. That's the key. And so that's what I did. I, I bought this duplex. It ran well for a while. It was in a pretty tough neighborhood in middle Georgia. That area kind of continued to decline, economically speaking, crime. And after some years of owning and operating that duplex, it got to where it, really the copper theft, back in the copper theft era, which is not so common anymore, but a lot, all the wiring got stripped out, the plumbing got stripped out, and the property just take, started taking on so much damage that it made no financial sense to try and renovate it and bring it back just to be torn up again. So what I decided was to cost average the mistake. What does the mortgage cost me? $413 a month. So what? That's not worth the foreclosure. Write the check and go buy some more properties and, and just bake the mistake in and don't worry about it. So, cause people have asked me that. They go, oh, why don't you just go into foreclosure? Why don't you just give it to the bank? Because it's not worth it. It's mm. not worth that kind of failure over $413 mortgage payment. You know, go buy two more, go buy 10 more, which is exactly what I did. Uh, and I definitely made mistakes along the way. I have definitely, uh, you know, had assets go bad and, and have lost money, certainly. But um, the, the key is just don't stop once you've had that mistake. You got to bake it back into the, the batter. You know, you got to keep going. It's when you stop and hold on to that mistake that it exponentiates the issue. So that, that's how I overcome or have overcome those uh, problems. Well, and that's what's really inspiring me about it too, is that you didn't even just buy the next like 10, 15, like you ended up just going to a 402. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was bored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but you know, something I wanted to touch on too, and in, in the book that you talked about is with that first deal, you also didn't realize that it was over. You bought it oh. at a completely <laughs> at overpriced. It was completely overpriced compared to what was going on yeah. in the market. So can you just elaborate on that yeah. experience and, and what you were feeling during that? Absolutely. That was actually technically my very first mistake in real estate. My first deal and my first mistake in real estate. And as I, I tell the full story in the book, uh, basically, what happened was I, I looked at this duplex through the cash flow narrative from the income approach. And that's that's looking at it and saying, does it cash flow? Does it meet my income requirements? This, that, and the other. And the answer was yes, it cash flowed and it met all the numbers, just like uh, you know the gurus had told me to do. The problem was I didn't stop and place the deal into the context of the market, i.e. comparable sales. So yes, the deal made sense from my position of cash flow. What I didn't realize was that I was paying about forty three thousand. Yes, yeah, forty forty three thousand for the duplex. Everybody else in the neighborhood is paying mid twenties, twenty twenty five thousand for duplexes in that area. So I, I literally wound up paying double what the asset was worth. And and so the takeaway here is one: don't only analyze deals from income. You got to kind of really make sure that everybody else is paying the same thing you're paying. Number two, just because you can get creative financing doesn't mean you should. And, and that was the mistake. I was able to get seller financing and it was actually one of my best deals because it was my first deal and it launched my career. But at the same time, it was, it was a mistake because I only looked at this creative financing and, and that made the deal more valuable than it should have been. I should have stopped and said, well, hold on. Yes, I'm getting seller financing on this deal, 
but it's twice the price of what I should be paying, you know? So, so no, I shouldn't have gotten seller financing. I should have done that deal at all. But um, yeah, that was the mistake I made. And because of that, well, let me put it this way. Overpaying for an asset is a gift that just keeps on giving. I still own that property and I still own probably 10 times the value of the asset because uh, it, it turned out I got a 30-year Fannie Mae mortgage. So I've got probably 15 more years on that that loan before I pay uh, all that abandoned building off. And that's why I leave it there. It's, it's a long-term loan. It, it's cheap. Who cares? It's the, the asset's secured, so it's not irritating the city. Just leave it. I also feel like there's a sort of sentimental value with it too. Like this was my first and, you know, you, you see, you go through the ups and downs. Ups yeah, and it's, downs. Only, it's only your first deal once, right? Yeah. It's only your first deal until it isn't. So hmm. just get that deal going and, and it doesn't have to be the best deal in the world. It doesn't have to be the, the home run asset you want. Just get started. Try not to make too big of a mistake. Don't get me wrong, but you know, you're don't don't overanalyze the situation. You're better off with momentum. You're better off just taking action and getting in there. You're going to make mistakes. You have to understand that. Don't worry about it. That's business. Just cost average. But uh, I think people kind of have a failure to launch because they get too nervous about that first deal. And that's what I want to convey here is it's not as big a deal as you might think. Just get started. Just get started. Just get started. Now, you know, when getting started, and let's say you want to get started in in creative financing, you know, and, and I don't want to give up too much of the book because, I mean, there's so much detail in the book that, you know, it's so hard that we're going to be able to cover this in just sure. one or two episodes. But something that you mentioned before you even get into creative financing uh, are the three pillars of real estate. Uh, yes. And so I was wondering if we could just elaborate on the three pillars of real estate. Sure. Yep. This is a concept that I created uh, some years back and I have created the concept of the three pillars, but I did not create the three pillars. I created the concept to bring them all together and teaching them as a, a single unit. And what the three pillars are is debt, market cycle, and exit strategy in no particular order. Those are just the three pillars. And so what we have to understand is market cycle. Okay. What economic cycle are we in? in what is the asset class that we're doing? What market cycle is it in? So is it, you know, we have, uh, and the easiest thing to do is just look up market cycles or business market cycles, and you'll see that it's expansion, peak, contraction, trough, expansion, peak, you know, it's just a rise and fall through the market, pretty simple. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do, do is figure out where are we today or where is your city or even your neighborhood? Where is it in this cycle? Because they can all be different. Okay, once you understand the cycle, The next step then is to decide what is the exit strategy and how does that land? Where does it make me land in that market cycle? And then lastly, we have to get the debt that allows for that exit strategy in that market cycle. And so if you can combine these three concepts in your deal analysis, you can greatly reduce the risk of real estate, you know, and it's already somewhat uh, low risk and risk adjusted because it's a tangible asset, which is great. But here's a way that we can make more money and and take on less risk by paying attention to the market cycles. Um, You know, I've been in the business, like I said, uh, over 15 years. And what I've known, and I've been teaching for a long time. And what I've noticed is that people tend to make a lot of money when the markets go up. And that same group of people tends to lose a lot of it on the downside. And there's a shift in who owns that and a wealth shift. 
So you make a lot of money on the upcycle. And then people like myself come in when you fail, take those assets <laughs> over and we make a whole lot of money on the down cycle and then the upcycle again. So the idea is to learn how to shift your business so that you're making money at all times. You're not making it and giving it back, making it and giving it back. And that's why I say you have to understand market cycle. Where are we? Um, you want to know, like, for example, if you're flipping houses or you're flipping small properties, you're renovating and flipping, you want to pay attention to when we go into a down cycle because now you may catch the falling knife. You're out renovating and hoping to force value up when if people in your area are going into foreclosure or the comparable sales are declining, you want to stop renovating because you, you may not be forcing the value as much as you think. I've made that mistake. Um, another one with market cycle and exit strategy and debt. What if you go and you say, well, I'm going to fix up this apartment complex and I want to sell it in a short amount of time, one to two years, which is short in multifamily, but you go get a 10-year Fannie Mae note or loan. Well, now, hold on. That comes with a lot of prepayment penalty and a lot of people don't understand that. And they say, well, gosh, that's a really good interest rate. You know, I'm going to go get that loan. Yes, but if you plan on renovating and selling that property in short order, you're going to give back a lot of your profit in exiting that loan. So you would be better off going and getting a short-term bridge note or something of that nature with a much higher interest rate, but an ease of exiting the loan. And so that's why I say you really got to pay attention to what are you trying to do with the property and does the loan match your exit strategy? And then when does that whole thing come due? You know, are you going into a down cycle and up cycle? You know, that, that's what the three pillars are for in a nutshell. Got it. Now, uh, I wanted to go back and talk about when you were forcing value for a single family home, right? Uh, like you said that, you know, since they are valued completely differently than multifamily, it's a little bit harder to uh, know, especially during a down cycle, how much it's going to sell for. Right. Now, when you are forcing value for a multifamily property, since they are valued like a business, do you see that same, is there less of a risk for these multifamily properties versus these single family properties? I, I believe so, yes. And the, the term is economy of scale. And that's why multifamily tends to be, in my opinion, a little bit safer. And I'm not making a big uh, push for everybody to, to not do multi or single family and go do multifamily. Both are good. You just have to understand what's your strategy. Well, when we go into sort of a down cycle or values may decline, through the economy and whatever the case, in multifamily, we have multiple units so we can continue to just rent and operate. And that's the greatest thing about multifamily is the price only matters twice in our, our point of ownership, when you buy it, when you sell it, that's it. So if you're owning it and operating it and the values decline, so what? Just don't sell it. Just keep cash flow and keep operating. Doesn't matter. Now, houses are a little more sensitive. You can take that same point of view, but yes, if you have one house and the tenant moves out, you're 100% vacant. And so that's what we call economy of scale. And I think that is some of the safety in multifamily. If you have a, a quad and you lose one unit, you know, you've still got three that may continue to make the mortgage and, and so forth and so on. So I believe it is a more stable concept for long-term hold. But if you're trying to get quick cash, I would actually recommend that you do houses where you can fix and flip. But that's that's transaction based. That's you know you're you're making money per transaction, not through revenue, not through cash flow. I believe if your ultimate goal is to to have sort of passive income from the business, you're you're going to find that more in multifamily than you are in single family. My mm, opinion. Got it. And I agree with that opinion, <laughs> and that's why I'm jumping into multifamily. But I love in the first place. Don't get me wrong; it's good money. It's just 
capital gain money, not cash flow. And also, I feel like there's a little bit more risk too, especially if uh, high risk, high rewards, especially if you it's don't more really market know. sensitive. Yeah. You know, flipping is, is very market sensitive and cycle sensitive. You know, you do real well on the upside, but then as, as we go down the, the downside of the market, you know, flipping is a little bit more difficult. Now, you know, touching on that and going uh, and focusing on the down cycle that I know a common a narrative that people say is, oh, it's about to crash. The market's about to crash. I don't want to buy real estate. I'd love to know your opinion, your take on that. Um, I, I think we're going to see a decline. I do not believe we're going to see a crash. Not like we saw in 08. You know, that that was largely due to irresponsible purchasing and irresponsible lending. And it allowed the world to, to seriously over leverage. And I don't think we're going to see a decline like that. But I do believe that we the prices are starting to move away from metrics that justify those prices, which means we're in a little bit of a bubble. And I do believe that we're going to see somewhat of a decline in values. If we're talking about multifamily, I do not believe that the decline in value will be equal across the entire asset class. I think your A's, your, your brand new, you can have A, B, C, and D being brand new down to your, your war zone Warzone. properties. Your gulag B. properties. Yeah, exactly. So I think the A's are going to decline a little because they're going to start giving uh, concessions, you know, getting the people to move in. The B's always hold steady. I love the B space. That's stuff that's, you know, maybe 10, 20 years old, newer, but not brand new, still in a pretty good area, but not the premier area. Your C's and your D's. Your C's are more of your workforce housing, your affordable housing, you know, D's being the pretty, pretty low end assets. I am afraid that those assets may decline dramatically in value for, for several reasons. I think they've been highly overpriced over the last couple of years. Number one. Uh, number two, age of asset. This is a problem that we've never really had in America. And, and right now, if you're paying attention to the news and a lot of uh, uh, the president's uh, programs, they're talking about infrastructure. You're hearing a lot about this infrastructure, funding the infrastructure. Well, I think we need to have the exact same conversation in multifamily. These buildings are getting old. The stuff built in the 1960s, the 1970s, it's largely pine construction, pine frame construction, wood construction. Those buildings are, are just starting to age out. They're galvanized plumbing, uh, you know, white pine construction, you're seeing moisture, you're seeing the, uh, the galvanized plumbing is starting to crumble and decay. Those buildings are already overpriced. Cash flow is, is the cap rates are compressed and cash flow is lower in those buildings. And what I'm afraid of is the capital expense that's not being calculated. And by capital expense, I mean the large ticket items on that property, roofs, plumbing, electrical, HVAC. Yeah, expensive to fix, but doesn't really produce revenue. Hmm. And those things are all about to start coming due. If anybody listening has owned stuff in that era, especially multifamily, you're probably spending a lot of money on your plumbing. Well, that's because it's getting old. And so the issue is if you stop and look at the price of the building, and then you account for all the repairs that you're probably going to need to do over the next couple of years, you're probably overvalue before you even buy the asset. So that because of that age and the, the CapEx that I know is coming for those properties, they're, they're largely overpriced at the moment. And, and I'm predicting a, a pretty significant clawback in the market for, for the lower end assets. The, as far the, CapEx, as value is concerned. the CapEx tsunami. CapEx tsunami. There you go. You yeah, the, cap, the CapEx tsunami. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I didn't really realize this too is so for 
both multifamily and single family investors, I mean, there's a common narrative where people don't want to jump into the game and they just kind of want to hold off and just wait until wait until it corrects. Now, would don't do it. No, don't do it. I was going to say, did, would you recommend that? <laughs> get in, get in cautiously. There are always deals out there. There is always a good market out there. You just have to be careful. So I would not say sit on the sideline and do nothing until the, the world becomes what you want it to be. It's like we say, you can't sit in the driveway and wait for all the lights to turn green before you back out of the driveway. You're not going to get anywhere like that, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying get in the business, just get in cautiously. I think education is imperative right now. I think you need to be working with people that, that can show you how to analyze deals, can show you the value of a deal, how to look at it. And then you've got to be patient. You, you can't, uh, what we call get their itis. You can't get there, uh, get nervous and jump out and just grab a deal because you, you're in a hurry and you can't find something and you've been looking at a lot of deals and, and now you're anxious. That's a mistake. And so I, I'm telling everybody, get in the business, just do it carefully. What I really think is that everybody that's new and trying to get into the business, now is the team building time. Now is the networking and, and coalition market. Now is when you go out and you start getting all your investors together, your partners together, so that when the market does fully turn down, you're going into that downturn market with momentum. It takes time to build a business and it takes time to build relationships and team members. So if, if you wait until the market is perfect in the down trough cycle, you're really going to be halfway up the other side before you get your momentum and you'll miss the market. So right now, I think is actually the best time to get in because you don't have much to lose and you're probably not going to do a deal for a little while. Great. Study, educate, you know, find your gurus, your mentors, get your investors together, get everything ready for that oncoming market cycle. That's, that's what I think people should be doing. And you know, what's actually really fascinating about that as well is that, you, so this book, Creative Cash, you actually waited to release this book. Is that correct? Like you actually wrote this, this wrote this a while ago. Correct. Yeah. The majority of the material is written um, in the last market cycle, actually. And uh, it wasn't in book form. I, I was teaching for a, a different speaker and uh, yeah, I brought this out sort of as a home study course. So that's what this originally was, was a home study course back when, uh, you know, it was a big thing to stand on stage and show everybody your, your <laughs> binder and it's full of CDs and you open the binder yeah, up yeah. and show everybody the CD. <laughs> you know, I, I literally did that. I wasn't very good at doing that, mind you. Uh, and, and so then, then the market kind of recovered and we've had this really good market cycle over the last sort of seven, eight years where the market just got better and better and better. And creative financing is sort of market specific. When the market is going great, it's not that prevalent. You know why? Well, because creative financing is about solving someone's problems. And if they don't have problems, they're likely to just take that asset, stick in the market and sell it. They're not likely to do seller financing, lease options, you know, things of that nature. Those techniques are for solving a seller's problems, which they're about to have. And that's why I brought the book out now is because this is something that's going to be very prevalent over the next, my prediction, one to three years in a, in a trough cycle. This is when you're going to want these techniques. Look around. Do we see properties that are uh, have tenants that are not paying rent because of COVID? Yes. Do we see lenders tightening up their lending criteria? Absolutely. And so that's what you want to watch. Watch your lenders and watch your sellers. When the sellers start having operational issues, the lenders will tighten up criteria 
the lenders actually force the downturn in the market by withdrawing their capital. And that makes the you know, debt more expensive, which then obviously brings prices down. And what I'm saying is we're, we're about to go into what I'm considering this, this perfect storm, this CapEx tsunami. You've got lenders that are starting to, to tighten up criteria where we also have COVID that has really put a lot of renters, unfortunately, behind in rent. And, and we see a lot of properties that don't have great collections right now. And third of all, that C-space with the aging assets. And so I think those three combinations right there are going to make a, a real decline in the affordable housing space as far as value is concerned. And that's the space where you're going to really see a lot of creative financing get prevalent over the next one to three years. So this is why I say, that's why I brought the book out at this point in time. It's because I've been here. I've been through these market cycles and I know what everybody needs to know and what's going to be a, a value going forward. So that, that's why we, we went ahead uh, and brought the book out now. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, like I, I, I love the book and it makes sense of why you would release it now too. And I mean, the fact that this information is still prevalent and even when you wrote it back during the, the 2008 recession. recession, yeah, during the last recession that, I mean, it's it's real stuff. I mean, this is real information and real education. And I, I updated it for, for this market cycle. And that was largely a lot of what was done was sort of updating the material, bringing it a little more current from the last recession, more examples of, of current stuff. Right. And uh, putting it in a book format instead of a uh, home study course. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you know, diving into it and just on a, on a high level basis, I'd love to uh, just dive into two of the strategies, seller financing and master lease options uh, as an overview, just for people that don't necessarily know that this could be a way to get your foot in the door for to be a real estate investor. So uh, can we start with just seller financing first and, and just break that down on, on a yeah. very simple basis? Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. The seller is going to finance the deal, i.e. the seller is going to act as the bank. So you're, you're not going over to, let's say, Bank of America or somewhere to get a loan to buy the property from the seller like we normally do. You normally go to this lender, you borrow 80% from the lender, you put down 20%, there's your 100%. That goes to the seller at closing, seller gives you the property. Okay, what I'm saying is now let's, let's take that lender out of the picture and have the seller create that loan for us. Well, the seller has to have full equity to do it. And there's the one catch with seller financing. If the seller themselves have a mortgage in place, they really can't give you seller financing. That's when the lease option or master lease option comes into play. But as far as seller financing, um, if a seller has 100% equity or if the amount of money that you might put down would allow them to pay off their, their senior loan, then they can give you seller financing. What you want to do in that particular scenario is you're, you're probably, well, I say give on price, take on terms. So you're probably going to have to give the seller asking price close to, you know, some kind of higher price. But what you want to do is get aggressive on the terms. So maybe you go in with very little money down or you go in with, say, interest only loans for a period of time or even my favorite, no payments for an amount of time that'll allow you to collect revenue from that property and renovate the property with its own cash flow. I've done that a lot and I love doing that. Go in, get a seller to finance a property to you, tell them you're, you know you need to have a moratorium on payments for let's say six months. Those payments can go to the back end. So the seller is ultimately getting their money. You just don't wanna make payments to them for six months. 
collect all the rent from the property, use that money to continue turning units, property. right? And then the property will actually renovate itself and, and get up and running. The, the, it's a way to limit your need for partners and limit your need for private capital to get a deal done, which means ultimately more for you. Now, when you now bringing this back before we go into to master lease option, when you uh, did that seller financing for that duplex, did you have any prior experience to, to renovating Zero. a property? Zero. Zero. None, wow. No, none. No. Pilot to duplex. That was it. Pilot to duplex. <laughs> I, I didn't. I had never even owned my own home at that point. Wow. So I was a landlord before I was a homeowner. <laughs> I was a landlord <laughs> while while still having a landlord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Why not? That's ballsy. But then the fact that just to get over those struggles uh, and and to become to where you are now, and the fact that you kept going is is still inspiring. Take action. Take action and keep going. Never stop. Now you know diving into the master lease option. Uh, I'd love if you can just elaborate on, sure. on that. That is a little more complicated than seller financing. Um, a master lease option is it's the same thing as a lease option. If, if you're in single family, you may have heard this term lease option. First of all, a master lease option is the same thing. Secondly, we use this term master just when we're talking about multiple units. Mm. That's all. So that's the only difference between a master lease option and a lease option is, is are we talking about you know one unit or multiple units? So a master lease option is a, it's two documents. It's our rental agreement and an option to purchase. And those are your two separate documents, all right? So the, the rental agreement or the lease, what we're doing is essentially renting an apartment complex from the seller with the right to sublet those units. Why would I want to do that? Well, probably because the property's not being run very well. See, now, if I rent the property, let's say for, it's easiest to explain with an example. So, Taylor, let's say you have this... Uh, you know, 100 unit apartment complex and you want to, you're, you're burned out for whatever reason, you don't want to deal mm. with it. Maybe you don't have uh, cash to bring the asset back up anymore. It's distressed. Who knows what the reason is? And so you say, I want to sell. And I, I say, well, Taylor, I can't go to the bank and get a loan because your operations have let this property fall into a distressed category. The lenders aren't lending on that right now. Taylor says, yeah, but I got to get out of here. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Taylor rents the property to me. I rent the property from Taylor with the right to rent to his units or fill up the rest of those units. That gives me control over the management, gives me control over the operations. Now I can come in and, and do whatever it was you weren't doing, you know, operate it better. Maybe I bring uh, cash to renovate the units, whatever the case. Under that uh, you know, lease, I'm going to stabilize and bring up the operations, the asset, so that the lender wants to finance it. But I don't want to go do all this work if it, and then you turn around and sell that property to somebody else. Hmm. So therefore the option to purchase, and that is the second contract that kind of come together to make this general uh, contract. And the option to purchase basically states, you and I are gonna decide on a price today. And let's just say $1 million for conversation's sake. So now you and I have agreed that I'm gonna rent your property and that I'm gonna buy it from you for $1 million. And I am the only person that has the right to purchase that property, the option agreement. I'm the only person that can buy that property for a certain amount of time that you and I will agree on. Again, for conversation's sake, let's say it's two years. So I now am, have the right to rent your property uh, for two years, and I have the right to buy your property between today and two years from now for $1 million. The idea is that I'm going to hopefully bring the value of that asset above that $1 million through my lease and through my operations. 
Now all of a sudden the property's worth $2 million, let's say. Okay, but I still have the, the right to buy it from you at $1 million. So that's the idea of a master lease option is that it's a way to get take over, take control of and, and operate and renovate properties that you don't actually own and that you don't have to go through the process of buying because A, that would be risky. It would cost you to, to bring a lot of capital down payment. Then you got to bring all this money over here to renovate the property. It's expensive. And why would, if you had all that cash laying around, is this the asset you would buy with it? This distressed asset that's in trouble over here? Or would you go down the street and buy this nice property with all that cash you have? That's how you explain that to a seller. And that's what I would be telling you if you had a distressed asset like that. And so I'm going to come in fix it up and then uh, buy it for that million dollars in the future. And now it's worth $2 million. There are some catches here. You're a renter, not an owner. So when I go to purchase that property from you at $1 million, yes, it's now worth $2 million, but I cannot refinance. That's the key. See, a lot of people think, oh, well, now it's worth $2 million. Hey, I'll just go borrow 80% of $2 million, and then that pays this tailor off of his million bucks, and I even get to walk away with cash. No, hold on. You're a renter, not an owner. So it is still an initial transaction, still an initial purchase. I am buying that property for a million dollars. I either need to have a million dollars cash or I can go get a loan and the lender is going to lend me probably 80% of $1 million. But that's okay because the property is now worth $2 million. So it's still a great deal and a great transaction. Or I could sell the contract. This is a good way that people can, can actually wholesale or sell assets like that. So if you and I come to this, this agreement, this lease option, maybe I go in there and get the property all fixed up. And then I find my friend over here who actually wants to buy it. And I assign the contract over to my friend and he or she goes over there and purchases the property, but gives me a fee in the process. So there's lots and lots of exit strategies that can be implemented with a master lease option. That, that's basically the concept. Well, and, and it's it's cool to know that you're not just stuck with purchasing the property after just making all these renovations. You still have all these different options to still yeah. you know make a yeah not buy it. That is an option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not, yeah, not buy it. And so you know, as as somebody new in this industry, right? I know something that you mentioned is that I shouldn't be looking at deals to try and creatively finance uh, through the creative financing lens. Right. Right. Can you elaborate as to why, though? Yeah. So what we're talking about here is you don't go out looking for creative financing deals. You just go looking for deals. You just <laughs> learn how to analyze a deal. You just yeah. look at all deals. When you see something that for some reason is distressed, and when I say distressed, I mean that won't be easily financed by a traditional lender. Then you say, okay, what's wrong with this property? What's going on here? What does the seller need? And we create an offer that solves those problems. And so that's why I say, don't go around looking for lease options or seller financing, mainly because you look like you're broke and you can't close. That's the main reason. You know, if you go call up a realtor and say, hey, you got any seller financing deals? You immediately look like you don't have any money. You're new to the business. And that will translate incorrectly. You don't want to do that. So you just go out and you start looking at deals. And when you come across something that uh, you can't buy with a loan, then we, we come over here to the creative financing. And that's what I want everybody to understand is that creative financing is not a one-stop shop. It's not the only way to do something. It is extra tools that we put in our toolbox. Look, if you're looking at an asset, it's nice, it's clean, it makes money, it's cash flow, and you can go get a loan, do it. Just go get a loan, buy the property, and be done with it. But if you can't, 
okay, now let's talk about creative financing. That's, mm. that's what it's for. And then, and then why could you not? Well, you don't use creative financing necessarily because you have no money or no experience. It is good for that, but you use creative financing when it creates value for a seller. That's the key. And that is the number one area. Most people go wrong in, in trying to use creative financing because they focus strictly on themselves. What do I want? What do I need? And they don't really stop and think about this offer creating value for a seller. So that's your first part of your analysis. What's wrong with the seller? What do they need? What's wrong with the property? What's going on here? Does my offer solve any of those problems and create value by solving a problem? And if the answer is no, either the seller doesn't have a problem or my offer doesn't you know, create any value by solving a problem, you're probably wasting your time with creative or seller financing, you know? So just, just go buy it with a normal loan. And what's awesome about that too, is that when you are looking at that, you also teach this technique in the book called the spy technique, sell it property ah, yeah, and correct. you. And so, you know, that, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. And I want to just be conscientious of time too. And sure. so moving forward then, what is, I mean, you've had all these years of experience and, you know, you have all these units and I, I'm just wondering like what the next step is. What, what, what's the next step more. for you? What are you focusing Always on? More. Always more. more. I, I go, I, you know, people love to ask me that question. What are your goals? What's your next step? I don't have any. Hmm. I, I'm not a big goal setting person. I, I don't really like long-term goals. I really don't care for three-year and five-year goals and this kind of stuff. That's it, we can get way off into the philosophy of all that. Uh, I, I think personally, I take more a little of an Eastern point of view than a Western point of view on goal setting <laughs> of that nature. I, I think we're way too goal oriented, way too focused on the long term. What are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing between today and Friday? That's the only thing that matters. Don't worry about next week. Don't worry about three years or five years. If you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing right now today, none of those goals make any difference whatsoever. So I'm telling everybody, focus on no more than seven days out and have no agenda beyond seven days. That's what I do. So I'm, I'm, my goals are always for one week only, and they reset within that one week, and I start over on Monday. And every week, so, so I say, like, say, look at three deals, analyze three deals, talk to two realtors, you know, meet, meet three money contacts, whatever. And those goals reset every week, every week, every week. So I don't have three-year and five-year goals because I'm working and doing my job every week, I don't need them. I go right where I'm supposed to and I get where I'm supposed to get because I'm taking action all day, every day. And I think people look too far into the future and forget about the right now. And so I think that's the ultimate mistake. So my real answer is like, what are my ultimate goals? I don't have any. Uh, just to continue growing the business. I love teaching. I love doing shows like this, talking to people like yourself. So I'm going to do as much of that as I can. I have other books floating around in my head that I would certainly like to bring out in the future. Um, I love teaching. I, we're working with Jake and Gino. We got a great, you know, mentor program going on there. So I'd love to do more of that. But um, yeah, they're not no no special goals. Conquer there. If if possible, can you not wait like eight, ten, or fifteen years for your next book release? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just 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 a request. Just a request. Sure, no problem. Uh, I'll pop the brakes on that yeah. one for you. <laughs> <laughs> just a couple last questions then. Now, sure. um, what is the what is the legacy you want to leave in in the world now? So like, how how do you want your family and friends to remember you by? How do you want people to remember you by? Yeah, the, the education, the material that I bring to the world, the, the book you're holding right there, you know, that that, that sort of stuff. Or you are, exactly. That's that's my legacy right there. You're holding it. I, I want to, you know, I, I don't have children. So, uh, you know, it's not about a, a financial legacy 
I don't care. You know, I'm going to try and spend it all before I go. And that's that. Right. Yeah. But what I do want to do is leave educational footprints in the world. I want to leave help breadcrumbs that other people can find the trail that I followed and then pick up this information and create their own path forward. And I hope that's what I've done with creative cash. That was my agenda. And it's what I plan to do with future books that come out. But um, that's, that's the legacy I want to leave is, is one of information and education and hopefully a little motivation somewhere in there. Hey, and you know what? I had all of those when reading this book. And yeah, thank you. Kind yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like, it's such an amazing book. And I know we just covered just some surface level information on it, but you really dive deep into the details about what's in it for the seller, what's in it for you, um, and even going through all the different checklists. So highly recommend anybody who's in this industry to, to pick up this book. And if people want to get in contact with you, how can they get in contact with you? Well, several ways. Um, email bill at gobroadwell.com. Uh, it's B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L, Broadwell, gobroadwell.com. Um, you can go to our website. If you're interested in investing with us or doing business with us in the future, uh, we have a section on our website uh, that is broadwellpropertygroup.com. So you can just find me there. You can also reach out to me through that website. And if you're interested in more of uh, creative information and creative financing information. We actually have a masterclass at creativeapartmentdeals.com. Uh, so just go to creativeapartmentdeals.com and you can get uh, the book and you can get a whole lot more information uh, about a 10 hour masterclass that we have on that site. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the book's uh, on Amazon. And the book's on Amazon. <laughs> no, awesome. And thank you so much, Bill. Thank you so Pleasure. much for, for coming in and you know, stay tuned for in the next few days when it's going to be released on that Friday for the action items episode, where we're going to go through uh-huh. a little bit of a, a coaching session. So uh-huh. yes, yeah, stay tuned. And thank you so much, Bill, for coming in. Hey, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating, and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.